Welcome to Get Undressed, the podcast that gets under the skin of the fashion industry. Brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game. I'm Victoria Moss, Fashion Features Director at Dressed, and I'll be your host. At Dressed, we want to help style a new fashion era, one with inclusivity and diversity at its core, where everyone can feel represented and at home. In a year when everything has been thrown off its axis, it feels particularly important to reframe the conversation around fashion. So in each episode, I'll be interviewing a luminary figure from the fashion world and hopefully finding out what makes them tick when we ask them to take the dressionaire. We like to think of the dressionaire as a personal and stylish guide to life in all its varied forms, looking at the power of fashion and how it can be a force for good rounding out the belief that to be well-dressed is far more than the sum of your outfit. It's how you live, think and act in the world. It's a mix of questions designed to get them talking and us thinking. Today, I'm really excited to introduce the incredible Sinead Burke, teacher, academic, writer, fashion blogger, broadcaster, disability advocate and British Vogue cover star who has now written her very first children's book called Break the Mould. It's a wonderful and inspiring account of Sinead's life experience as a little person and how she has used this really as her superpower, both in her own life and in encouraging others to embrace themselves as they really are and to celebrate perceived differences as part of our unique journey through life. Sinead, a very warm welcome to Get Undressed. This is such a treat. Thank you so much. I'm so thrilled to be part of this podcast. Ah, well, we're very, very excited to have you here. Um, how are you? I am doing okay. Um, I have got somewhat used to a different kind of life. I think like many people who perhaps listen to this podcast and like yourself, prior to the beginning of this year, I had a lifestyle or a work <laughs> kind of habit where I was traveling all the time and now I'm in my small town in Ireland every day, but I've had the privilege of being able to develop a routine, finding joy in simplicity and sameness, if that makes sense. But I think we also have these days where we ebb and flow with what's going on in the world and trying to feel a sense of control and realizing we can have no control over any of it. But I am doing very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Yes, it's it's definitely been interesting, hasn't it? I think we're sort of out of adjectives and metaphors for this year. Um, but I think that idea of sort of wanting control but having no control is quite apt. <laughs> yeah, it gives me hope, though. You know, I think for so long, systems like the fashion industry, but systems in general were articulating this desire to change. And whilst this moment has come about at the harm and cost of lives of so many, it has given us an opportunity to really address our behaviours and how we work and how we function. And it gives me hope that change might actually now be possible. Because how much were you travelling before before um, this? An unmerciful amount is how my mother would describe it. <laughs> I was in different countries every week. Wow. And I think in many ways it was because I felt... I had to. I also live on an island in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean between the UK and the United States. So in many ways, my only option in terms of international work was to travel and particularly to fly. 
Um, and I use a brilliant company called Ecology to pay off my carbon emissions and to grow trees. But still, it was a toll greater than the one on the planet that that really it took on me personally. And I think what we've learned right now is that technology is equipped to provide a sense of what it's like to be in person. And all of that need to be in person and to travel was just not necessary. And from an accessibility point of view, that's so enriching because planes aren't accessible. Airports are not accessible. So the idea that I can work from home or a space that at least I don't have to climb to use and work around is great. I sort of think in some ways technology has sort of enabled us to actually go back to how things were before. Like it's sort of taken all these kind of very modern, very snazzy ways of communication to actually just return to a slightly slower, more simpler way of life, um, which I sort of find quite interesting because it, um, it certainly, I think certainly in the fashion world, it felt very unsustainable in lots of ways, um, how everyone was operating I think it's given us new ways for different types of people to participate. I think like that travel was a barrier. Cost was a barrier. Yeah. What I think we need to look forward into is thinking about how do we make Microsoft Teams accessible to everybody that we work with or could possibly work with? How do we do that for Zoom? What questions do we need to be asking in advance of a meeting to ensure that everybody is included? And how do we find that balance between enough video calls where we feel like action and work is progressing but we also don't exhaust people because they are spending the entire day trying to eyeball eight tiny screens <laughs> on a laptop and figure out yeah. what a person's body language is whilst they are trying to worry about feeding the kids in 20 minutes yeah absolutely yeah no too much zoom is 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 exhausting <laughs> <laughs> um and also so you are you've launching your book um, which is very exciting yeah i think for me my background is in teaching and I wanted to be a teacher since my very first day of primary school. I just loved the idea of the classroom being a microcosm of society at large and that education was a catalyst for changing the world. And I think I believe that because my parents instilled in me a love for education, but also a value for it. I think from the earliest of ages, I knew that education was important because I would need it for my own independence, just living in a world that wasn't designed for me. And I think I had these grandiose ambitions of writing a book for a really long time. I think my yeah. initial assumption was that I would write an autobiography, which is a testament to my own ego. <laughs> and <laughs> then quickly realized, thanks to my darling siblings, that, you know, the only person who'd be interested in reading that was my mother. And um, so I thought maybe that's not the best option to think about. <laughs> but really using my experiences of being a teacher, of being a disability advocate, of understanding what it's like to live in a body that's different. I think I wanted to leverage that learning and to really try to instill some new thoughts, almost like a new education in children. Because I think for me, when I was in the classroom, what I learned was that there is a specific age that a child comes to when they begin to be conditioned by the world around them and their own ambitions and dreams begin to be conditioned by what it is they are told, by what it is they can or can't do based on where they live, the colour of their skin, their disability or lack thereof. And for me to leverage the experience of living three decades in this body and being able to say to children, like, you can do anything you want. You may have to find a different way in which to undertake that, but also realizing that we're all different. And whilst some people's differences may be more obvious, it is that thread of everybody experiencing the world in a different way through their own lens. That is something that unites us rather than to instill fear and anxiety and unsure of what to say, what to do, or saying the wrong or right thing. 
and really just to encourage children to find the space to be comfortable in being themselves. Yeah, but you do that in the book in such a in such a lovely way, sort of um, threading your own experience and you know throughout it, but also bringing in different people and different ideas and and asking different questions, which I think is is kind of the important thing is to you know to let people ask those questions and and you know it's fine to notice difference and it's fine to talk about it and you don't need to turn that into a negative or to um, be worried about asking about things does that make sense so much of the absolutely it does for me so much of the book is trying to find that space where we encourage curiosity but we also realize that in society it is nobody's responsibility to educate us on their life on their lived experience in order for us to be aware or more inclusive that some of that work we have to do ourselves but realizing that asking the question being conscious of of the language and the terminology that people prefer it's more than just words it's shaping a society whereby we acknowledge that other people belong and we create a space that is safe and inclusive for them. And for me, more than anything, what I tried to do in the book is to encourage children, or if it's an adult who's reading it, to realize the potential that we each have to make a difference. And whether that is introducing them to someone like Jacinda Ardern, who's the Prime Minister of New Zealand, who has just had an incredible trajectory in terms of leadership and leading with kindness and compassion, particularly through the period of COVID-19, or if it's just realizing that, you know, picking up litter in your community or not using the word midget anymore within your vocabulary, that that Mm. makes a difference. And I think it's trying to find that balance of, particularly for children, not to feel overwhelmed by the need for change within society, but their ability to do something that makes a difference piece by piece. Yeah, and it's it's the small things as well, I think. I love that idea because, you know, it can sort of be this overwhelming thing of like, well, you've got to change the world. And, you know, the way you sort of break it down into those small changes you can make in your you know daily life as a way of doing that it's um it's really and there's great different, there's different methods for everybody for me my methodology was always just in asking questions and usually asking why that I was told you know there was one way of doing things or disabled people couldn't fit within the fashion landscape and I would just say why yeah and you'd quickly realize that the other person didn't have an answer that it was just <laughs> redefining the status quo And we all have a way to kind of challenge those biases that exist. You just have to find your own route to causing chaos. Absolutely. Bring on the chaos. Um, And where do you fit um, fashion into all of this? For me, fashion has always been incredibly important personally and then professionally. For me, it is unequivocally tied to me being different and primarily being disabled. I look at my siblings. I'm the eldest of five. I have three sisters and a brother. Wow. And whilst, yeah, there's a lot of us. Five. <laughs> five. And whilst they're all interested in clothes and probably some definition of style, they are very stylish people. That's not only my <laughs> yeah, wardrobe. Ca- I was like, there, oh gosh. <laughs> I was like, oh, they'll definitely not buy the book when they hear this. Um, but they have no interest in the system of fashion. They have no interest in the industry. They do not care that Kim Jones is designing menswear for Dior. They're like, that's great. Really interesting. Thank you so much. Um, But my interest within the system is directly tied to my disability because I felt when I went shopping with my sisters in particular, they could buy clothes and they could meander through a store or through a shopping center or just through the whole process without even thinking about it. And because I couldn't buy the clothes that I wanted, my interest was then diverted to 
trying to change the industry, if that makes sense. Because I realized that for me, when I got dressed in the mornings, it gave me an opportunity to present a visual to the world that was different to my genetic makeup, if that makes sense. Because yeah. people would look at me and they would make assumptions about what I could or couldn't do because I have dwarfism. Whereas if I'm sitting across from you in a Valentino skirt, Gucci slingbacks, and I don't know, Balenciaga silk blouse, you're like, oh, that cost a lot of money, A. <laughs> <laughs> She's doing all right. <laughs> B, why is she wearing that in the middle of the afternoon when everybody's working from home? But C, that's interesting that she's paired all that together. I wonder what she's reading. I wonder what she thinks. I wonder on the political spectrum, where is she leaning? It gives people a different point of conversation to begin. And yeah. it gives me power in challenging what people first assume. But it also gives me a place where I can feel further comfortable in my skin. Because as I evolved working in the fashion industry, all of a sudden clothes became available for me to wear. Clothes that I could only ever dream of. And that first feeling of wearing clothes that fit me, that I wasn't trying to squeeze into in the children's department or trying to alter afterwards in the women's wear department, but clothes that were designed for me to fit me. I remember it being a revelation and turning to my sisters and saying, like, I, I get it. I understand why you want to dress up. I just never had that emotional connection to clothes before because that was never considered within the transaction of going shopping. If you are ready, I am going to uh, put on my imaginary Quizmaster chapeau and guide you through the dress genre. Cannot wait. Um, so there's lots of questions, but we're just gonna we're gonna move through. Some are quick, some are not so quick. Are you ready? Should we start? I I'm ready. Fabulous. Okay. Did you find the fashion world an easy or hard place to get into? It was so challenging. And I had underestimated it enormously, but I had also underestimated people's kindness. And I think outside in, I assumed it was a machine without many human interactions. But I think the reason why we are so invested in fashion is because the beauty that people create within that industry, whether that is a pattern cutter or whether that is a creative director. And I think initially what I found hard was having to convince people of the rationale of including disabled people. But that's not something that's only true for fashion. That's true for the world. But I think when I was 19 writing a fashion blog, I thought it would be super easy. I thought I would like walk into <laughs> the conglomerates and they would say, yeah, what do you want to do? We'll hand over the entire industry to you. And, <laughs> and that hasn't yet happened. But, um, you know, give me another 12 months. Soon, soon. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you have a plan B? I never thought this would be my career. If it is my career, I was wholly confident that I was going to be a teacher forever. I did a master's in broadcast production for television and radio because I loved storytelling and saw the importance of the stories we tell and who gets to tell and write and shape those stories. And one thing led to another. And that's not to say that I just rolled from one opportunity to another and there was only luck involved. There was strategy. There was networking and really sincere thought put into what it could be but the idea that those thoughts could then become a reality and, and become something a career is never what I imagined so I still think at some point in my life I will return to the classroom and be a teacher but at the minute 
I am very keen to continue what it is that I'm doing. And what's the most useful career advice you've been given? Um, I think as an Irish person, I am self-deprecating. My mother once pulled me aside and said, be really careful with that. I used to be very self-deprecating in a way to come across as being grounded and to perform humility. And my mother said, you are giving people permission to think less of you. That's brilliant advice. Um, Who inspires you most in the industry? I just saw an amazing video by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Vogue magazine doing a beauty and skincare routine Mm. where she spent the entirety of the routine speaking to the audience, telling them about the importance of voting, the importance of democracy and the challenges that exist to systemically oppress specific voices. And I thought, that's how you do it. It's not one or the other. It's both together. I think we often think that fashion is facetious, that beauty is not for those who are smart or well-read, but we all exist in the same ether. And I love the idea that you can be interested in fashion, wanting to change the world, moving legislation to ensure that the world is more equitable. You don't have to be one or the other. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Who has helped you the most? There are lots of people who have really supported me and given me confidence. But one of the most tangible examples that I could give is absurdly Jamie Lee Curtis. So <laughs> stick with me. The story gets okay, better. Okay. So that's, she, that's good as it is, to be honest. Good Jamie is, Lee right? Curtis. That's oh, yeah. It's even better. So <laughs> she was coming to Ireland to do some press around Halloween. I had never done a public interview and Universal Studios asked me if I would interview an actor who was coming in. And I thought, sure, it's probably, you know, an extra, but super pleased. (laughs) And then I learned it was Jamie Lee Curtis and I was like, oh, mm, I've heard of her. And we had this really interesting conversation where the first question I asked her was, how do you describe yourself personally and professionally? And she answered it so sincerely with such emotion and honesty that I was really moved by it and then I went to Los Angeles a couple of months later and she found out and we had more conversations and she collected me from my hotel and gave me a tour of the entirety of Los Angeles from the desert to the sea and at any point in my life or career if I am stuck or have a conundrum I think to myself what would Jamie Lee Curtis do? And if I don't know, I usually ask her and she gives me the advice that I didn't know I needed to hear, but always the one that is most effective and smart and just brilliant. She is incredibly kind. That is incredible. And also very, very good to know. Very good to know. She is a good friend to have. How brilliant. Um, Well, if you can top that, I don't know. Um, what's (laughs) (laughs) What's been your most thrilling fashion moment? My most thrilling fashion moment. I think there's two. I was at a Burberry show. It was Christopher Bailey's last show for Burberry, which was very emotional for everybody in the room. And the seat beside me was empty. And as the doors begin to close, somebody runs in and they sit down. And I turn and it's Edward Enenfell, who had just been appointed as editor-in-chief of British Vogue. And I panicked and texted (laughs) my best friend. And I was like, Edward expletive and sitting right beside me what will I do 
And he texted me back and said, do not let him leave without saying hello. So I tugged on the sleeve of his jacket as he was about to exit the show. And I was like, hi, Edward. But I hadn't really been paying huge attention to the show because I was developing a script in my head as to what I would say to Edward. So when I got my opportunity, I just like word vomited at him, um, which he was kind of taken aback by. And just told him that I was really interested in what he was doing at Vogue and could we have a conversation about how we bring disability into the inclusion movement? And it began this ongoing conversation between he and I. And then sometime later evolved into me being on the cover of Vogue, which is absurd <laughs> and ridiculous that you never know what a conversation may lead to. And then I think probably the other moment is going to the Met Gala, which is the most frightening thing yes. that I've ever done. And it seems ridiculous. Like I was so unwell the morning of the Met Gala. I had just built it into my mind as this, I, I can't even describe it. I just felt such pressure. I knew that the reality was the only thing and the only person that I could speak for was myself. And the only person I could represent was myself. But being the first little person to attend the Met Gala, I felt pressure that nobody was giving me that I had given myself. Yes. And I remember ringing my dad who was at home in Ireland and I was like, dad, I don't think I can go. <laughs> like, I think, I think I just need to stay in the hotel. I don't think I can go. And my dad was like, Sinead, it's a party in a museum. You'll be fine. <laughs> have a nice time, take some selfies, send them to me. I'd like to share them on Facebook. And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and I think being in a room of people who you have only ever seen through the lens of magazines, television, film, and to be meandering through them. And hopefully a kid at home watching the red carpet and seeing someone who looks like them for the first time on that carpet. And maybe they then think that going to the Met Gala is something that they can do because it's already happened. And was it fun? I had burnt so much nervous energy <laughs> that at the dinner I was yawning. <laughs> and I remember like looking around and everybody is like ready to party. And I was like, I am ready for bed. Um, but it was wonderful. And I shouldn't have been so surprised by how lovely everyone was. But there was such consideration given to accessibility for me on the night that there was real great freedom in me being able to just enjoy myself. But yeah, you have wild moments where, you know, Michael B. Jordan introduces himself and he's like, hi, I'm Michael. I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> I, I know exactly who you are. But I'm Sinead. Um, what do you like to work with? I am organized. I have high expectations, but in return, I try to mirror that. I hope that I'm kind and understanding. I am solution focused. I try not to come with problems unless I have solutions. I am a person who will work all of the hours that I'm awake and will need the people who love me to like close my laptop and say go to bed. <laughs> but I am tenacious and I think overall I just want change to happen because I think if I had a mission in terms of my role it is kind of to be unemployed because I'm no longer needed and I'm not the only person doing this work but I think that the voices that are requesting and asking and creating change in the industry will no longer be as necessary because the industry will have moved to a different formation. And can fashion be a force for good? 
I think it can. But I also think it's challenging in a sense that fashion is such a tangible connection to a capitalist world and environment. I think lots of activists would question and argue if freedom and liberation and independence is actually possible within capitalism. I'm not sure. But I think if that's the model that we have to work within now, how can we leverage it? How can we shift it? How can we tilt it to ensure that those who wish to participate, who either want to feel represented or want to be part of the industry in a less visible way, have the tools that they need to be able to do so safely? I think it can be a force for change because simply we all wear clothes. And why does clothing matter? For me, clothing matters for lots of different reasons. I think clothing is a creative output. It is a form of art. It is an industry that is housed with lots of feminized and queer voices who have been working for decades with skills that are passed on often generation to generation, creating beautiful luxury art that is wearable. I think it matters because it has huge influence, whether it is politics, sport, art, education. Fashion seems to be this vehicle that shapes everything, whether that's, you know, Colin Kaepernick and Nike, or Beyonce or Serena Williams, or DeRay McKesson wearing a blue vest every time he protests. Fashion has this incredible ability to move society through image and commentary and by the ambassadors and people and work and issues that fashion supports and pushes further you know we can change the course of action that's happening to the planet around sustainability we can change the conversations around black lives matter that's powerful and why doesn't clothing matter i think clothing begins to not matter when it becomes a tool for almost punishment of sorts. Mm. If you think you need to look and feel a certain way in order to fit in with a societal or industry standard, that's when the industry begins to not matter because it's harmful to you and to so many others. And I think for me, when I talk about the importance of the fashion industry, it is less about being able to afford or feel comfortable or succumb to a trend, but being able to feel yourself. I think the idea of clothes is not about ameliorating you, but allowing you and your personality to be illuminated to the world. And if there comes a moment when you feel like the clothes are wearing you rather than you wearing the clothes, that is the pinnacle as to when they don't matter. Brilliant. Um, and what does being well-dressed mean to you? At the minute, during a global crisis, it is fluffy slippers. Perfect. A plissé skirt with an elasticated waist. Yes. <laughs> and whatever is not creased and to hand as regards to a top, usually stolen from a sister who will text me three hours into wearing that item going, do you have my top? <laughs> and I'll go, no, I haven't seen it. <laughs> and hope that I won't see them for the rest of the day. Um, 
but I am fortunate to have beautiful pieces in my wardrobe. And I think when I'm wearing something that is tailored, that fits my body shape, is when I feel the best I feel when I'm dressed. Because those garments hug me. They are an armor protecting me from the weather in the world. And they are kind of a safety blanket that encourages me to risk it all and try anything. And what's your favourite fashion quote? I used to quote Coco Chanel all the time. My thinking has evolved (laughs) or changed due to relationship connections that she may, may or may not have once had. So quotes that I really try to live by now are actually from the American writer and feminist Audre Lorde, who although isn't within the fashion system, I think is a person that fashion could learn a lot from. And there are two. The master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And what I take from that is that we cannot change the system with the same voices, the same perspectives, the same ideas that have always been present. We need to rebuild with a new lens. And the last one is that your silence will not protect you. And I think this really reminds me of my time in the classroom. And as simplistic as it might sound, but arguments that happened in the playground and this notion that we are often the bystander and it is safer to be a bystander. But who are we protecting? And is it protecting us? And is it the world that we want to live in? And what do you think will really drive true inclusivity in fashion? I think if one brand steps forward and does it really well, all others will follow. I think that's the reality. What I would like to happen is that brands realise that it's 30 years since the Americans with Disabilities Act and that three decades later we should be far evolved in our approach to inclusion of disabled people and do it because it is morally good, it is profitable, it is good for creativity, it is good for innovation. But I think if I'm waiting for an industry like fashion to do something because it is the good thing to do, I think we'll all be waiting too long. So I think if we can encourage one industry leader to step forward and do this collaboratively, and if they find a way in which to do it that is authentic, that is creative, that leads to innovation and leads to profitability, everybody's thinking will change. Mm. If you could only wear one outfit for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, one outfit. You can probably wash it in between, I think. Yeah, that would be ideal just for everybody else's comfort. See, I'm thinking practicality now, like an outfit that would go day to night, yeah. work to casual. Like you'd need to, if there's no footwear options, bar the one that you're wearing, this is tricky and difficult. I think, okay, I have it in my head. I've given this too much thought. <laughs> I think cigarette tailored pants. Thinking Le Tuxedo Usain Yeah. A white crisp shirt. 
a biker leather jacket. And see, now I'm trying to decide between do you go for the mules and loafers or do you go for a pair of trainers? I mean, I would go trainer because, you know, it's forever. I think we should go trainers. I think that is an outfit that you could take the leather jacket off if you needed to be in a more formal environment. You could put the leather jacket on if, like, you're with pals and they think you've just come from the office. The runners means you can, like, race after a cab. Yeah, I think I think for me that's the ideal. With there would have to be a hat and a pair of sunglasses somewhere to the side, just for all seasons. Yes, yes. And what piece in your wardrobe makes you feel confident? I think before this moment, I would have said a leather jacket that I own because up until being at home for such a long period, that was the item that I wore every day. I don't think I've worn that since the very beginning of this year (laughs) and reflecting on kind of what this moment has taught me is some of it is my change in the items that I use all the time and I have a pair of Reebok runners that I have been wearing every day since the beginning of the pandemic because this joy of finding I suppose satisfaction and simplicity and in routine I get up at 6 a.m I answer emails from 6am to 8am and usually schedule them so nobody knows that I'm up answering emails at 6am. And then I go for a walk at 8am, a distant walk where I ring a friend and we talk every day. And over the course of the pandemic, my length and the duration of my walk has really elongated. And I now walk about four kilometres a day in those runners. And they kind of look battered and worn after several hundred days of wearing them. But They make me feel confident now in some ways because I never thought I would walk as far as I do now every day. And as strange as it might sound, the independence that it has given me is just huge. And it's just not something I made time for previously, nor is it an item in my wardrobe that I would have cherished before this. But it's a pair of white, battered, beaten up (laughs) Reebok trainers that have become home and have given me safety and confidence over the past number of months and what piece makes you feel happy I have an amazing like incredibly ridiculous but amazing head-to-toe monogrammed Gucci tuxedo with a blue silk shirt but it verges slightly on tacky according to my mother who has (laughs) intriguing taste (laughs) but I love it even more because of that like I have no occasion in my life as to where I could actually wear it and for somebody's eyebrows to not raise (laughs) but I think that's the reason why I love it so much like I think I could wear it to Tesco you should entirely confident I should my local Tesco would be intrigued you've got to wear these things you can't you know wait around for the right occasion you just got to wear them that's what I think Good idea. I'm going to wear it to Tesco next week. Yeah, and take I'll, a I'll picture. Let you know how it goes. <laughs> yeah, I want to sell you there. Any specific aisle? Any specific aisle? <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know. Where would you wear? Which aisle would Gucci fit? Um, I think it would do well in cereal. Yeah, something with a bit of a jazzy backdrop, some bright cereal. cereal boxes, or fruit and veg. Yes, either. And what do you put on to feel powerful? I think it's always a cape. And I don't know if it's from 
childhood imaginations of reading books about princes and princesses and every superhero having a cape. And I'm not sure, like I'm not a person who's invested in the Marvel universe. Like I have no idea who is what or what's going on in Star Wars or Star Trek or the fact that they are different things. But <laughs> I think it's the movement. I think it's the the whistle of the wind as you twirl in a cape and feeling like you're moving the air around you just by existing. The idea that you are making tangible your presence. So I think if I'm ever nervous, if I ever need a dose of confidence, I put a cape on. And what was the last thing you bought? So I just celebrated quite a big birthday. Well, big for me. I turned 30. And then thinking about how I would reward myself for, you know, just existing until this Yes, of course. You have to but <laughs> you have to buy yourself a present. I'm a big believer in that. So too. So I bought myself a Telfar bag. Oh the, I, the the very thing. That's very, very of, thing. of of the minute. It's very of the minute. So I <laughs> bought a navy Telfar, the medium navy Telfar bag last year because I just really liked and admire what Telfar Clemens was doing. Yeah. And how he was thinking about this notion of luxury and making it more affordable for people, particularly for communities of colour and black communities. And I love my navy bag. I when I was travelling I travelled with it all the time. And then when I turned thirty and seeing what they've been doing in relation to authenticating the bag and making sure that one craftsperson is creating the bag for one customer. I treated myself to the large green bag, which I'm hoping that I can physically fit into and somebody can just cart me around, which is my definition of luxury. I'm not sure who's going to do the carting, but that is the thing that I have bought for myself and cannot wait for it to arrive. That's exciting. When did you last really laugh? I have an amazing friend called Sharon and we communicate probably daily through voice notes. And whenever I get a notification to say that Sharon has sent me a voice note, I know that I need to find the space, probably privately, to listen to that (laughs) voice note. Not because of the content, but because of my reaction to it, because I will probably laugh so loudly that I will frighten a stranger and I will probably (laughs) snort and it will probably be incredibly unappealing to like observe. So whenever I get a notification from Sharon, it is probably with her, at her that I laugh most. Um, And what do you always have with you? I wish I could really say something cool, like... (laughs) Your Telfar bag? Yeah. Like, it's it's my phone. Like, I do not leave, well, anywhere without my phone. And I wish my reliance on it was not so much. But I use it from Apple Pay to Mm. taking notes to reading, to listening to podcasts, to listening to audiobooks. Like it has become this device that is so multifunctional. I just want to throw it out a window and never see it again. (laughs) (laughs) But can we pretend it's like a Telfar bag or a Smythes and Notebook that I sit in a park and just observe the world and take notes for my eventual autobiography or, you know, anthology of essays about the world? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And what do you always forget? I usually will forget to like bring lunch. I will usually like go through the process of making the lunch to bring with me. I will have it until the very moment in which I'm leaving the house. And then when I will have left, 
And maybe seven minutes later, I realized that the lunch is sitting on the counter. That's not a very glamorous answer, but it is the reality. It's usually the thing that I have spent time caring, researching where it is, locating it, and bringing it to the point where it almost comes with me. Um, And what makes you happy? People. I am so incredibly lucky that I genuinely believe I have the best friends and family in the world. And you don't choose your family. So the numerology of me being selected to be in the Burke family, I'm not, maths isn't my thing, but the probability of that is just huge. And yet I won that ticket to be part of that family unit. And then to be surrounded by a brilliant group of friends who live in all different parts of the world, but who make time outside of their own kind of comfortable time zones to check in, to see how you are. And to mean that really genuinely, to not just ask you how you are and to kind of move on to whatever's going on in the internet of the world, but to be there for you in your low moments and to not perform positivity, to not say, oh, it's all going to be okay, because there are moments when it's not. And to be that person who will support you in those challenging times, but then also to be the person who champions you and celebrates you when you are having a big birthday or writing a children's book or whatever it might be. But it is my time with those people. And how would your family describe you? Oh, um, not how I would describe myself. <laughs> oh. I am laid back only when it comes to domestic tasks. <laughs> Everything else in my life, I am uptight and organised. So I reckon my family would say, wonderful, but cannot cook and chooses not to clean. Um, <laughs> I imagine is how they would describe me to people who, uh, you know, were being auditioned to live with me. They were like, best of luck. But I hope, I hope what my family would say is that I am generous with time and spirit and any resources that I might have on my disposal. And I'm a person who, who after speaking with me, you leave my company feeling better about themselves and the world and a person who will always help to, you know, at the sacrifice of themselves to make sure that a person's day is a bit better. I hope that's what they'd say. And how would your friends describe you? the person who sends voice notes at 2am or 6am or the person who will like ask for your thoughts on the world about what happened in Beirut earlier this year even though you have no tangible connection to Beirut or or a person who will say what do you really think this meme is about even though they don't have time to answer that question but Mm -hmm. um, I also hope that they would say that I am a person who is loyal and who tries at all times to be a good friend and fails endlessly at that act, but persists. Um, do you always feel confident? Uh, no. Most times I don't. I think what we've all lived through has cultivated huge vulnerability in all of us. That notion of wanting control but not being able to possess it has really skewed our access and what we want for ourselves and the world. And I think there are so many moments where, like, I don't know if I'm the right person to be on this podcast. I don't know if what I'm saying or what I'm doing is 
interesting or or relevant and that's not me fishing for compliments. I think we have this relentless self-talk where we just second guess ourselves or we compare ourselves to others and I think yeah whenever there is something I'm trying to do that I haven't done before particularly something like writing a children's book it's probably the least confident I felt like the editing process was probably the most grueling thing I have ever done yes 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 brutal because sometimes. it's so hard to not take it personal yes and how do you feel when you are the center of attention I think it depends I think I have lived in a body where I have been the center of attention for three decades but not of my choosing so I think when I choose to be the center of attention whether that is being on a podcast or being on stage or being at a fashion show the percentage of agency that I have within that scenario I suppose gives me confidence but also because it's a choice I lean into it and I'm playful and get to enjoy it Mm. whereas there is this constant gaze observing me because there are not many people who live in a body like mine and I find that probably more challenging than I'd like to admit and I try to pretend that it doesn't bother me because having some sort of a profile means that you don't want to make it instructive you don't want to make it okay you don't want to normalize that behavior so in ways you pretend it doesn't matter but I think I'm always aware that people are observing Mm. and sometimes I just wish they weren't yeah and what film do you watch on repeat what film do I watch on repeat that is a great question um what have I watched a lot lately? I have watched Hannah Gadsby's two Netflix specials quite a lot lately, but that isn't necessarily a film. During all that has been happening with the amplification of the Black Lives Matter movement, I have watched Ava DuVernay's documentary, The 13th Twice. Yeah, it's wonderful. Hmm. It's really powerful. And what film have I watched? One of my favourite films is a French film called Les Choristes which is about a choir and the power of music in, again, creating social change and providing opportunities for a number of boys who are in kind of a a young detention centre. And I I watch that quite often. And what else? There's probably lots of problematic films (laughs) that I watch again and again. Um, But yeah, I still live in my family home. I live with my siblings. So often there is something with a superhero or something with an avatar or <laughs> Star Wars or Star Trek on screen. So I have bits of knowledge of all of those things. But yeah, whatever is whatever everybody else is watching. Um, and what book do you always come back to? I dip in and out of Sinead Gleason's Constellations, which I have read cover to cover. And is this beautiful anthology of essays about the body. And considering it's only recently published, I'm surprised by how often I reach for it. I also kind of go back and forth to, I have a book by Angela Davis, Women, Race and Power, I think it's called, that I read Mm -hmm. quite often. And I have a book called Counterculture by Bell Hooks 
again, in those moments where I feel powerless, where I feel like I want to help and realizing my help may not always be wanted or needed or of use. Those are the books that I kind of dip into to resource myself with things that I can actually do. And what song always makes you dance? Whitney Houston's So Emotional and the <laughs> Scissor Sisters' Let's Have a Kiki. Very good choices. Excellent songs. <laughs> um, what's your favourite room at home? I don't think it really counts as a room because it isn't one. But when I go into the dining room and go out into the back garden, there is a stoop that's kind of sheltered that's in front of one of the sheds that is at the perfect height for me to sit at with a coffee to ring a friend with this illusion of privacy and outdoors and just speaking to the environment that's kind of my favorite place to be what's the most extravagant thing you've ever done teetered with the idea of buying myself a rolex watch for my 30th and then thankfully had a group of friends and family who went sorry you're what and I was like, oh, well, like, I need a Rolex or a Cartier. And they were like, really? Tell us more about that need. And I realized <laughs> that I was being absurdly ridiculous and thought, no, you're right. That wouldn't be a need. Now, that would be a ridiculous wish. <laughs> um, that's probably the closest I've gotten. I'm usually fairly logical, but I would like to buy a house. So I think that would be buying a place of my own would be the most lavish thing that I've ever done for myself. And what's the best lesson you've learned so far? I think it's that notion of don't try to fix yourself to fit within other people's and society's definitions of what either beauty or style or normality looks like. When I was 11 years old, I was given the option to have limb lengthening surgery, which is an intrusive process that would have made me taller. And I chose not to have that surgery because I realized that the only reason I would be doing so was to fit in with everybody else and to make myself appear to be closer to the world's definition of normality, whatever that word even means. And choosing not to do that, choosing to be myself, I find it hard to believe that I had such awareness at 11 or 12, but I couldn't be more proud of my 11 and 12 year old self to make that decision because it has shaped everything and the person that I've become. Yeah, that's incredible insight for an 11-year-old. Your parents obviously did a very good job of preparing you for that question. They're very good people. What's the best line you've ever heard? I was just going to say something entirely ridiculous, which was a quiz question I once heard, which was, what, was this, what is a synonym for an underground toilet? Basement jacks. <laughs> I'm not sure why that came to me and that is a really <laughs> terrible thing to include in a podcast but when you ask that question that is the first thing that popped into well, my head. That we'll take that, we'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favourite cheap thrill? A McDonald's breakfast meal. Sausage and egg McMuffin, coffee and hash brown for a fiver. What's your favourite game? Rummy, card game. What has this year taught you, good and bad? Good. lean into the chaos and don't fight it embrace it 
bad. People won't be around forever. You can't guess the time that you'll have with them. Relish it and revel in whatever interactions you can have with people while they're here. What are you most proud of achieving? I think the idea that there might be someone somewhere in the world who has come across a project that I've been part of who doesn't know me, but yet because we share something in common, either a disability or they might have dwarfism too, that they think something they previously thought was impossible is now possible. That is everything in a way. So now we've got our hopefully fun um, quick fire round to, uh, to round us out. Scrabble or chess? Scrabble. Tetris or snake? Tetris. Monopoly or Cluedo? Monopoly. Minimalism or the avant-garde? Avant-garde. Running or swimming? Mm, swimming. Yoga or Pilates? I don't really know the difference. I'm going to go yoga. Christian Dior or Coco Chanel? Christian Dior. Croissant or scrambled eggs? Oh, tough call. Um, croissant. Diamonds or pearls? Pearls. Sneakers or heels? Oh. Heels. Catherine or Audrey Hepburn? Oh, interesting question. Let's go with Catherine. Hmm. Grunge or glamour? Glamour. Dublin or New York? Um, they both have... I'm going to go Dublin because my passport would be taken off me otherwise. <laughs> Barry's tea or lions? Oh, this is going to get me in so much trouble. I'm not a tea drinker. Um, <laughs> can I say coffee? Because sure. again, I'll be extradited. Simone Roger or Christopher Kane? You are getting me into all sorts of trouble <laughs> This is incredibly difficult. Um, oh, gosh. Um can I say a Simone Roche shoe and a Christopher Kane dress? Okay. Well, slightly, but okay, slightly. fine, Thank fine, you. fine. Uh, okay, last question. So it's a, it's an important one. Okay, I'm listening. Boyzone or Westlife? I think it'll have to be Boyzone. I think, you know, no matter what was just such an incredible mantra for life. It really is. <laughs> life is a roller coaster. Uh, see? See, I mean, that's how we needed to end this episode. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure to get undressed with you, Sinead. It has been wonderful. Never have I got undressed with someone in such a fun way before. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Get Undressed, the podcast brought to you by Dressed, the world's first luxury styling game, which is available to download now from the App Store. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Get Undressed via your preferred podcast platform. Listold.